Welcome to The Power of Good, a podcast series that highlights the work of people doing great things, caring things, often life-saving things for other people. These are the altruists, the optimists, the social entrepreneurs among us, those helping others across backgrounds, politics, religion, and geography in compassionate and creative ways. I'm your host, Jake Murray, and join me as I seek out these inspiring leaders and innovators to learn more about their work, what they do for others, and why they do it. In New England, winter tomatoes are not available and getting tomatoes that are shipped in from Mexico are completely tasteless, right? They're like wet cardboard bombs. <laughs> but you can't, get a, you can't get a salad or a sandwich around here in the winter that doesn't have a tomato. But why does it have a tomato? That thing's useless, it tastes like garbage, it came from wherever, but it, we're still coded that it should have That's a tomato it. in it, right? A burger has a tomato on it, but why does it? Known as The Hub, Boston is the home of individuals and organizations that are always looking to push the envelope and make the city a center for innovation. That's why we brought the power of good to Hub Week, Boston's annual ideas festival for art, science, and technology. This year, Hub Week was celebrating its fifth anniversary by focusing on the theme of the pursuit. I spoke on stage at District Hall, an event venue and programming hub in Boston's seaport, with three remarkable individuals about how they approach social innovation. Just a quick disclaimer, this was an interview in front of a live audience, so you'll hear some laughter, applause, and the sound quality will be slightly different than usual. I began speaking with Don Lane, Chief Marketing Officer of Saucony, about how marketing campaigns can do actual social good. And he was introduced by Tara, one of our producers. Thank you. Thank you, Tara. Uh, thank you, Hub Week, for hosting us. And thank you, Don, for joining me as, uh, as the thank first you, guest in this live pop-up podcast format. So I want to jump right into this and talk about Run for Good, which you might look at it and say, this is a branding effort, but it also has this element of trying to address a problem or a challenge that you see in the world. So I want you to talk more about what is that challenge and that problem that you hope to address with this movement, this campaign. You know, I think the thing that Running for Good is trying to address is, for us from a business standpoint, is to get people more active, more up and running, because the research that we have done has identified that people are striving for physical health, they're striving for mental health, but really what they want to do is be a part of something that's bigger than them. And what we found is that running is a sport that brings people together and that good things come from people who run. And so what we're trying to do is lift the tide for our category, but also really appeal to people to invite them into a sport that not many people do. Right. And it's running is, it's not just solitary. It can be social. There's running groups. There's running teams. There's, um, and that's also part of this uh, initiative that there's ways that you can be part of this and be connected to other people. It isn't just about you and your personal fitness. Right, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely for people's mental health. It's for their physical fitness. It's for their own balanced self. But no, there's an absolute community aspect to it. One of the things that we like to say is that um, it's not just about what we say. What we do is more important than what we say. So we undertake initiatives like we conducted the first Instagram relay race. 
um, okay. back in June. And that idea was to get a virtual community of people to go out and get up and running and then challenge others to run with them. And we had people from 36 countries participate in it. So what would you say to the, the many folks in the world or in the U.S. who are not runners? What are the ways that they can participate in this run for good campaign? Or what are the ways that this appeals to them? Well, I mean, I don't want to, to beat around the bush here. We are trying to get people up and running. Look, running doesn't have to be intimidating. You don't have to even consider yourself a runner to run and get a lot out of it. We conducted a lot of research. We did ethnography around the world, across all continents. And the thing that we found that was really interesting is that even the most avid runners don't describe themselves as runners. But when we ask them why they run, they can't stop talking. They talk about how they first started for physical fitness. What they found along the way is that they keep running for mental health. They may run for charity. They may run for the ability to have pizza or drink beer and not totally let themselves go. <laughs> they may run for keeping in yeah. shape for another sport that is their primary sport, but this is cardio and how they stay in shape. And at the end of the day, people are running for goodness, however they define it. And in a world that's full of a lot of badness, what we're trying to do is be a brand that stands for something more than just our sport, but the power of what our sport can do for the person, but also the goodness that they can bring to the world by being more balanced, more physically and mentally fit, and more of a contributor to the greater good, if you will. I'm curious about you in your experience with running or what running has meant for you. Yeah. What has it meant to yeah. me? Yeah. I, for me, it's a chance to get away from it all. What I love to do is just throw my headphones on and just get the hell out of here and just get up and running. And what I find is that when I do that, I'm my best self. What I find when I don't do that, I was in a meeting the other day and a guy on my team who has no problem telling me the truth. I was, you know, you get hangry. I was getting rammy. I think I hadn't run. <laughs> you, were, you were grumpy. You were yeah, irascible. Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know what it is for running. Maybe rammy. I don't know what it is. And he looked at me and he goes... You haven't run today, have you? <laughs> and I said, yeah. you got me on that. <laughs> you think there's a code at your work where they say, uh-oh, I, I don't know if Don ran today. Let's just kind of keep it cool because we got to make sure, you know. It's... I, people stop making eye contact with me. <laughs> I, think. I don't know what it is. No, it doesn't happen too often. The use of running or endurance sports to raise awareness about something or raise money, this relay that you did. Yeah. Why is our endurance challenges a good way to raise money? I'm thinking of the Pan Mass Challenge, yep. you know, different walks for hunger, marathon teams. Why do we tend to support those kinds of fundraising efforts? What's the appeal? I think that people want to be part of something, and they want to participate. And it's one thing to donate money, and there's nothing wrong with donating money if that's what you can do and how you can give back and be a force of good in the world. But I think what most people crave is the ability to participate in it. And when you think about it, running's the most primitive sport. You didn't even need shoes. We'll sell shoes to anybody, but we couldn't sell them to cavemen. They got up and running. It's an easy thing to do and participate in. So I think, I think that's what it is. I think people want to give back and be a force of good in the world, and running's just a very easy way to do it. It's fun, too. And I'm, I'm not running, but I'm sponsoring you because you're doing something yeah. that's a challenge, yeah. that you're pushing yourself because I feel like you're doing something above and beyond uh, that's pushing you to the limits. I think life's more fun when you've got skin in the game. And so for the runner, they've got skin in the game. And for those that are supporting him or her, same thing. Coming to this slogan or this campaign, yeah. um, Run for Good, where did you land yeah. on this as the, yeah. the name of the campaign? 
we're a global brand and we wanted to find a unifying idea that would appeal to cultures everywhere. People run for a lot of reasons, but at the end of the day, however they define it, it's goodness. And so it was just instinct. It came to us. It was a good idea. It was one of a number that were on the wall. And we just had a magnetism to it. We just kept coming back to it because it was true for our brand. It's true for our products. But most importantly, it's true for what people are looking for in life and in sport. And so it just worked. And we're just, it just launched in June. We're getting it up and running right now. And there's a lot of work to do with it. And it, we think it's going to work hard for us. We see it as an enduring idea. Right. And will there be another relay, Instagram relay around this to raise money? Or? We just did a, a challenge in partnership with an app called Strava in September, and we had 100,000 people participate in it, and they collectively, globally ran over 8 million kilometers, um, tripled what our goal was. So, you know, that collective um, momentum is, is working for us. Great, great. So my last question is, who inspires you? First and foremost, my family, my kids, and I'm a coach. And I love, love coaching kids. There's so much joy and purity and hope and goodness in them that it's really, really motivating. I also love music. And there's a, an artist I love called Chris Robinson, who's an amazing artist. I've had the opportunity to meet him a few times. And as crazy as he is, he's pretty inspiring. And I take what I learn from him and apply it to my everyday life. Awesome. Well, continued good luck with Saucony and Run for Good. Thanks, Jake. And I hope more people start running. (laughs) Thanks, Jake. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. (laughs) That was Don Lane, Chief Marketing Officer of Saucony. Next at Hub Week, I spoke with Ruby Warrington, author of the book Sober Curious. She explained how her attitude towards alcohol has shifted over time and how many others are making a similar transition. Ruby, thank you for joining us. Thanks and for coming from me. Brooklyn this morning. All the way from Brooklyn, but not this morning yesterday because that would have been a really early start. All right. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> I feel better about you being here early. Um, the first question or the first sort of framing that I'm hoping you could address is this notion that you know, there's a continuum of people's relationships to alcohol, from those who abstain to those who are much more addicted, dependent. The concept of sober curious, how does it work across people who are in these different situations in different parts of this continuum? So yeah, you're referring to what is now much more widely recognized in addiction circles as this spectrum when it comes to our attachments to alcohol. You mentioned there are people who are completely abstinent, have no interest whatsoever, and people who have a very severe addiction to what is one of the five most addictive substances on the planet. Let's not forget, it's up there with heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, and nicotine. So very hard, actually, given our biology, given the nature of the beast, not to form some level of attachment to alcohol, particularly given that we live in what I call a dominant drinking culture, meaning it is absolutely the norm to be a drinker by default. So few of us really get given that genuine option as a kid, as a teen, as a college student. You can drink or not drink. It's typically, we're adults, we drink, this is what we do, right? So Sober Curious is really addressing all of the people who are in the gray, neither the abstinent have no idea, have no interest, and are not the, have a serious problem, I'm in rehab, I'm kind of like, you know, this is life and death. 
if you think about the large swathe of the population who exist in the grey area, up until now there really hasn't been much of a space for people to question their drinking. And that's what getting sober curious means. It's right. about questioning, right. getting curious about like, what's the true nature of my relationship to alcohol? How is it really impacting my life? Like, am I just drinking by default or am I drinking because I really choose this for myself? Right. So it's, um, it's opening up the conversation about addiction, partly to destigmatize addiction. There's so much stigma that exists around the subject of addiction and we have so many kind of ideas about what it means to be an alcoholic or to be addicted yeah. to alcohol but like I said I think it's actually much much harder to um, maintain a completely quote-unquote normal relationship or to drinking right. than it is to become um, addicted on some right. level. So it's this spectrum of people in their relationships with alcohol in which there is some choice. People have been asking me, you know, why did you write this book? What's the Sober Curious movement about? And I think the deepest mission is that it's about making it really as normal not to drink as it is to drink so that we really genuinely do have that choice. Right. Are there differences across gender and age in terms of the ability to understand or participate in a Sober Curious campaign or, or mindset? Anyone can get sober curious, meaning anybody <laughs> is equally empowered to question their relationship to alcohol and the overall impact it's having on their lives. Right. There are some studies that show alcohol affects men and women differently, physically. It's easier for women to become addicted to alcohol but more men are addicted to alcohol. There are so many multiple factors at play given biology, psychology, the environment we grew up in, our spiritual life. All of these factors can have a huge impact on like right. how, we, how we relate to alcohol. Right. What's your own personal relationship with alcohol? Well, these days I'm a non-drinker. Um, I don't identify as an alcoholic. I do recognize that my drinking, I have abused alcohol in the past. I began to get sober curious around 2010. I was going through a very stressful time in my life. Although on paper, everything looked great. I had my dream job. I just moved into my first home that I bought. I, my marriage was going great. But I was experiencing a huge amount of anxiety, um, feeling extremely overwhelmed by my responsibilities at work. And yeah, using alcohol as a way to medicate. And when I say medicate, using it as a way to just switch off, just to relax, just to kind of like escape. But I think what's happening now is people are questioning whether alcohol is the best and the healthiest way to escape. We're finding other things like meditation, we're finding yoga, we're finding mindfulness, we're right. finding other ways to connect. The conversation around mental health is expanding exponentially and I think that people are just questioning, yeah. hmm, is this escape serving me? And so for me, I was using alcohol as a way to escape. Um, at the time, I didn't see it that way. At the time, I was just drinking because I'm a Londoner and that's what we do. <laughs> and going out you know? at night and yeah, that's what everybody's exactly. doing. Every, every social situation, we can all relate, right? Every dinner, every party, every restaurant, every date, every concert, every social situation yeah. is awash with alcohol. Yeah. And stepping out of that can be very intimidating. But I found when I really questioned what was going on and how alcohol was impacting my well-being, I, there was a very strong correlation between feeling overwhelmed, anxious, and how much I was drinking. Mm. The, the nights when I drank, it was exacerbated times a hundred. And so I've got to a point where I genuinely see no need and have no desire for alcohol in my life. Mm -hmm. But I'm not saying that I won't ever have a glass of champagne at a 
wedding. Got it. You know? Got it. All right. <laughs> it's just that when I have, so the, rule the recent is that times. We can all have a glass of champagne at a wedding. Is that the rule? <laughs> no, the rule is there are no rules. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Sorry. I'm just being too literal. Um, so I'm curious about your perspective, and you're from the UK, and people from different cultures, uh, what their relationship is with alcohol. In many cases, it's introduced earlier, it's much more casual. Do you feel that other countries do have a healthier relationship with alcohol, or is that a generalization? That's somewhere in Europe or France or Germany, where you know you. It is a generalization, and it isn't. For example, Britain does have the highest kind of like numbers of binge drinkers in the world. In fact, British women in their forties are the, the most Wait. most voracious binge drinkers in and the world. Women in their forties in Britain. Yes. Okay. We grew up against a backdrop of Sex in the City as our kind of like, and the Ladettes, which I don't think you had here, but Ladettes was the kind of feminist movement in the late 90s where women were taught to have sex like men, be as rude as men, be as mouthy as men, drink as much as men. So it was about drinking pints of beer. And so, yeah, in terms of breaking it down, Sober Curious has sold the most copies in English-speaking countries. So it's England, US, Canada, Australia. But these are all very hard-drinking cultures also. Um... But I kind of feel like the, the problem drinking is probably the most prevalent in cultures where we have a breakdown of family connections, where there is less access to mental health or even just regular health care. So, yeah, I think, you know, you can look at sort of social cultural factors at play here also. Right, right. I think one of the um, challenges of being sober curious is that um, you're around people who are drinking. All the time. All the time. All the time. Right. And, or that if you're not drinking, people think, you know, what's, why are you not drinking? What's going on with you? Or are you pregnant? Or what, you know, what is the sort of... If you're a woman, you're pregnant. And if you're anybody else, you have an alcohol problem. So there's something wrong with you. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's, do you, those who are interested in Sober Curious, are you preparing everybody to sort of coaching? This is what's going to happen. These are the kinds of things that you're going to face. This is what you need to be ready for. There's a chapter in the book on conquering FOMA, fear of missing alcohol. And I address this issue, um, the issue of peer pressure, because it's huge. And it's often the first question that people have. A lot of people are very curious. They're feeling very excited and empowered by this decision to no longer be beholden to a substance which is kind of potentially causing them some problems. Even if those problems are only a hangover, A new study came out last year that identified five levels of problem drinkers. Level number one being people who experience hangovers. I would say that's probably the majority, if not all, people who would class themselves as just kind of regular social drinkers. But the number one problem that people come to me with is, what are people going to say? How am I going to explain my choice? How am I going to defend this in a way? Like, what am I going to say? The only way to really overcome FOMA is to put yourself into those situations and confront it head on, Mm, you know? I encourage people not to make excuses, like be honest about it. Honest might simply mean, I'm really enjoying not drinking right now. If people want to question you, but really, why aren't you drinking? You can always come back at them, why are you? Right, (laughs) right. And actually start a conversation, you know? Yeah, why are you drinking? Why are you drinking? Okay, all right. Boomerang, that question. Um, I'm going to use my example, myself as an example. I have a lot of sort of social anxiety. I've been using drinks to sort of feel more comfortable when I'm going out at night. I stopped doing that. What's the chance 
or the likelihood that I might start doing other things, other vices, let's say, oh. to sort of... To, to ease your social anxiety? Yeah, to, to address the underlying well, the first issues. the thing I would say is question your social anxiety. Perhaps you're not as anxious as you think you are. Perhaps once you actually get into the situation without a drink, you might realize, oh, you know what? This isn't so hard. Like, maybe these people aren't as interesting as I thought they were, in which case I can leave early. But, um, <laughs> but maybe I'm not <laughs> And that say anxious. that. Maybe got, no more, one's too interesting, I'm leaving, right? Yeah, maybe so. I'm more confident than I thought. I mean, I, I, like many of us, began drinking in my teens. And it was for those reasons. I wanted to feel more comfortable. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to, I was shy talking right. to boys, like all of those yeah. things. And so if I have been teaching my brain from the age of 15 that I need this substance to feel comfortable in social situations, that's quite a lot of programming that needs to be undone. That's right. quite a lot of neural programming that can be rewritten. Right. But the way to rewrite it is to override it by putting yourself in those situations and proving to yourself, I don't need alcohol to be standing in this bar. Perhaps I do need some new friends or perhaps I'm just not in the mood. You may find yourself socializing differently. Right. How big is social media in promoting this idea and having others feel like there's a whole community out there who are like me and thinking this way? I think that social media, the big, there are, there are, I have many thoughts about social media. Um, <laughs> one of the plus sides of social media is that it gives us access to all sorts of different opinions, all kinds of different voices that we might not come into contact with in our everyday lives, in our immediate community, right? And so I think that people are able to find support, stories like theirs, stories unlike theirs, and inspiration on social media. And this is definite. This movement has definitely been very much fueled by the social media yeah, platforms. Yeah. yeah. And it's a. It's also an advertisement. There's an event where all, people can go to Absolutely. the sober curious. Absolutely. And so we walk into a sober curious event, and what's happening? What are we drinking? <laughs> well, this is the very interesting thing. I mean, honestly, this year has seen an explosion of alcohol-free options coming onto the market, whether it's delicious alcohol-free craft beers. There's a great athletic brewing company. They advertise beer for runners because actually beer is a great isotonic sports drink. Alcohol-free oh. beer, that is. <laughs> There's a Groovy out of Denver, Colorado, do an amazing alcohol-free Prosecco. There's the alcohol-free spirit Seedlip from the UK, which just got bought by Diageo and had a big investment into it so there are more and more options coming onto the market for people right. to um yeah still go out still feel like a grown-up without having to order an orange juice in a bar you know <laughs> you don't have to drink or take your clothes off to have a good time you don't <laughs> that's what it comes down to <laughs> um all right my last question is who inspires you anybody with a curious mind who's willing to answer some of those more challenging questions, ask some of the challenging questions and answer them honestly and with integrity. These are the people that inspire me. Awesome. Thank you. Well, continued good luck with Sober Curious. <laughs> that was Ruby Warrington, author of the book Sober Curious. Finally, at Boston's annual Ideas Festival for Art, Science, and Technology, I spoke with Erin Baumgartner, the founder and CEO of Family Dinner, a company that delivers a New England farmer's market right to your door. I want to start by framing this, uh, one of the big challenges you're addressing, which is the globalization of food production. 
and moving things to more local, locally grown, locally supported, locally eaten. Why is globalization of the food industry so problematic? Sure. So what we're trying to do at Family Dinner is use data, logistics, and technology to understand this food supply chain. We know that like big agriculture, monolithic agriculture, and the worldwide food system is sort of a chaotic system. And it doesn't really have any of our best interests or the best interests of the environment, the best interests of animals at heart. It's optimized for exactly one thing, and that one thing is profit. Huge food companies don't care about kicking out delicious-tasting food or making sure that their carbon footprint is low or caring about the welfare of animals. They really just care about dollars. And we think that that's problematic on many, many levels. And so what we're trying to do is shorten the distance between where your food is grown and where you eat it, because we think that having that distance be as short as possible is critically important across scales. And it has benefits for the environment mm-hmm. in terms of reducing transportation and yep. costs related to transportation, nutrition. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the majority of things, it's simple, like looking around at Whole Foods, even as you walk around, looking at the little stickers of the countries where things come from, it's really hard for us to get access to data on where our food comes from and how it's grown and what goes into it. That sort of distance is murky on purpose. I think like large companies want to keep that distance and keep that information really convoluted on purpose because they don't actually want you to understand what's going into your food. They don't actually want you to know what it's being treated with. And so the only thing that's really available to us through the naked eye is looking at the little stickers of where your produce is coming from, what it, where it's a product of, and even just doing the mental math of how many miles your tomato came from Peru to get to your house and understanding that like there's folks in Lexington, Mass, you know, 10 miles away that are growing better products. And what is the impact of all that travel? What is the impact of what those things are being treated with? And trying to understand that I think is important. Are all communities capable of developing their own sustainable agriculture? Well, I think that certainly depends on where you are, what the environment is, and how people are coded to eat, really, right? Like, we can't grow citrus or avocados in New England, right? If you're a local food nerd, you're not going to eat avocados around here. We just don't have them. But I think a key question is not just what food is available, but really re-engineering the way we think about food, the way that we think about what has to be on our plates. In New England, Winter tomatoes are not available, and getting tomatoes that are shipped in from Mexico are completely tasteless, right? They're like wet cardboard bombs. <laughs> but you can't, get a, you can't get a salad or a sandwich around here in the winter that doesn't have a tomato. But why does it have a tomato? That thing's useless. It tastes like garbage. It came from wherever. But it, we're still coded that it should have, have a tomato in it, right? A burger has a tomato on it, but why does it? Are we able to re-engineer the way that we think about food? And I'll pivot for a moment and think about a lot of the fake meat products that are super popular now. Is it important to understand the global impact of raising animals? It absolutely is. Is the solution lab-grown fake meat products? I'm not certain. Is the solution rethinking about how much meat you need to eat in any given day? And does meat always have to be on your plate? I think is a more interesting question to try to approach and solve. It's the mindset. We need to think about what we really need to eat and what we can have that's healthy and doesn't uh, have to be everything that we grew grew up having or that we think is the the preferred best option. So what, yes, but sort of what we've done at Family Dinner is create a distributed network of local farms, 
right? In a lot of cities around the world, we have access to farm fresh food, either through things like farmers markets or through CSAs, community supported agriculture. And both of those models are great because they get people eating local food and they support local farmers. And we think that both of those options are excellent, but in many ways suboptimal. For the farmers markets and the CSAs, farmers are still limited to the geographic areas that they're willing to either travel to be present at farmers markets or they're geographically limited by how far you're willing to travel to pick up your CSA from them. One of the ways in which we're using technology is that we've created an e-commerce subscription platform or we've modified an e-commerce subscription platform such that we're operating online. We don't have a brick and mortar, and that's essential to our goal of eliminating waste in the system. But it's also important for the farmers because it's kind of blown the doors off of this geographical limitation. And now farmers in, again, Lexington can sell in the 40 towns that we deliver to in Massachusetts, not just in the areas that directly surround their farms. So what we've done is created this network of small farmers, allowing them to be more powerful together than yeah. they could be as individuals. You created this, this distribution system Correct. that didn't exist. Um, what are you learning about the New England farming ecosystem? It is a hustle. <laughs> <laughs> it is a hustle. And the weather here makes things really complicated for folks. Um, what I have learned is that some of the food that's coming out of these farms, the things that we hear from our customers, like that is the most carroty tasting carrot I've ever had. I was like, I don't know if carroty is a word, but I'm with you. Like, like, I'm totally with you. But I think that the food that's being produced in New England is of an extraordinary quality, and we're just not really giving it uh, the space it's due because we're so used to reaching for you know, tomatoes in winter and the avocados that have traveled 5,000 miles to get to your plate. Right. What is the shift in the winter months? Are you just, it's just shift. It's just a total drop in the amount of food that's available, or do you shift towards other produce or items that is also a hustle right so there's a lot of people growing food indoors in the winter in New England hydroponic hydroponic, using greenhouses and so it's you can get a lot of beautiful microgreens or smaller tomatoes and things like that so we still are delivering food to people all year round and it's just a little bit more as I said of a a scramble and a hustle for us to find food that it's going to be fresh and exciting but also like whimsical because we're always trying to get people to be excited about the food that's coming to them So every week with family dinner, you get not just produce, but meat and fish and cheese and grains and little cookies and treats because we're trying to get people to be excited about the food that shows up, but more importantly, to understand where it came from so that they know the story of who grew it, how they grew it, where it was grown, and hopefully that they like assign a little bit more value to that food and are a little bit less willing to waste it. Maybe you take the old apple that doesn't look so beautiful anymore and instead of throwing it away you find a purpose for it because you know the story of what went into it and so we're hoping to eliminate waste in the system in that way as well um my son would throw that apple at his his brother could he use that (laughs) would that be a good use of that apple sure as long as somebody (laughs) then picked that apple up and ate it i mean my 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 husband is really obsessed with not wasting anything that's in our fridge and his aim is to create a cookbook called don't throw that away i'll eat it (laughs) all right (laughs) about like i'm like tim Tim, that chicken is three weeks old and he's like i will find a way and it's like great (laughs) that's gonna sell i think i I think so messaging yeah um so who are your customers? Mm-hmm. 
So we're bringing whole ingredients. When you open a bag from us, it's whole ingredients. Nothing is chopped or prepared or wrapped in 30,000 kilometers of plastic that you then have to throw away. You're receiving whole things. Um, and we also then send folks recipes, like here's how to cook this, here's how to use your leftovers, here's how to make stock with all your extra stuff. So we're really delivering to families and to, I think, couples who are interested in cooking more at home. And one of the fun things that we hear from people is that they're getting more playful in their kitchen, and they're getting more comfortable in their kitchen using these ingredients. I think that there's definitely a space for whole meal kits. I think it's exciting. Anytime people are in their kitchens, you know, using their knives, getting more comfortable cooking, I think that's important. Um, but this is sort of like taking the training wheels off and getting people to, again, use whole ingredients and, and sharpen their expertise in the kitchen. Do you just drop it off and it's like, here's some great way to do this, here's mm-hmm. a menu, but what they do and how they do it is on is on them. On them. Right. Okay. So it's not something whereby with a typical meal kit, it would be like, with this, you make fish tacos. Here is a quarter of a bell pepper. Here is a tablespoon of olive oil, again, all wrapped up in plastic and foil and things you have to throw away. You're getting whole ingredients from us, and we send, send you a few ideas of like, okay, cool, this is a whole chicken. A, here's how to butcher it. B, here's how to make a, here's how to roast it and then make chicken salad or chicken sandwiches and then take the carcass and make a stock. We're trying to give people like the holistic experience of cooking with these ingredients. Right. And then your husband comes in and says, don't throw away anything. I'm uh, just going to eat, eat it. Whole far- thing. I will eat that okay. whole thing. <laughs> um, is there an effect which might be called the, the gourmet food market effect where you create a lot of great healthy foods, gourmet food, it's expensive. Those with means are the ones who are mainly buying mm-hmm. and benefiting from those foods. Are you concerned at all that there's some replication of that phenomenon or that divide? And are there ways that you're trying to address equity and access to what you're do- to your produce? Absolutely. So the first thing is that I think the, one of the major issues with food currently is the ubiquity of food like the cost of on-demand eating. Food is absolutely everywhere. But the dichotomy of the ubiquity and the scarcity of good food, right? You can find crappy food everywhere. You can get a pizza at a gas station, which makes my head want to explode. But you can. (laughs) But can you get good food everywhere? And no, you can't. And that's an issue because we know that food scarcity, food deserts, et cetera, are a real problem. And I appreciate our customer base. I love our customers and how we've been able to grow. But one of my primary concerns is how do you take family dinner and the access to wonderfully delicious local food and make it something that's available across socioeconomic scales? So one of my goals is to integrate what we're doing with SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and HIP, the Healthy Incentives Program in Massachusetts, and try to make some model of what we're doing more approachable. Because you can't say that you're mission-driven, which I believe that we are. We think that the mission of eating local food, keeping the distance between where things are grown and where you eat them is critically important. You can't say that you're mission-driven, but just for these folks over here. right? That doesn't work. Right. So it's, it's going to be a struggle. We may have to tweak the model, but it, that's, one of, that's one of our main goals. Right, right. So I'm curious about the name Family Dinner. Yep. There's also a sort of social mission or a family being together, eating together, at least some of the time, part of time, that seems to be important as well. Can you talk about that as part of your work and your mission? Yeah, I think it was Julia Child that said, like, when you love someone, cook them good food. You know, like, and I think that a lot of us show love and enjoy spending time together around food. 
Um, whether it's something quick, like a quick lunch together, or whether it's a big elaborate meal. It doesn't have to be fancy. The name family dinner came from when my husband and I were getting married, we were like, oh man, we've got all these wacky friends on your side and these friends on my side. We want these people to get to know each other. And we want to cook more, so we would have dinners on our porch. We would send out an invite, and the first 20 people who said they were in would come over for dinner, whether you knew each other or not. And we'd set up rickety tables, and you might be sitting on a chair, or you might be sitting on a bucket. <laughs> like It wasn't fancy, but the idea of getting people together around food um, was really important to us. These are the same folks that we started out with two years ago when we decided to launch this business. We wrote to this same group of people and we're like, okay, cool, so we've got this idea. We wanna bring you groceries and you'll give us money. And they were like, great. <laughs> so seven people signed up and it was so, it wasn't analog, but it was so inefficient where literally they would send us a text message, please bring me groceries. We would shop around, bring them groceries and they would PayPal us money. Like it was so poorly run. But that allowed us to beta test and find ways to make optimizations in the system, find and tweak the technologies that we needed to make this thing run, and start to look at our own data that then feeds uh, our system. And so we grew from those seven people to serving about 350 active customers uh, every week. And this is in greater Boston? In 40 towns in the greater Boston area. So my last question is who inspires you? Well, I got my mom here, so that's going to be answer number one, obviously. <laughs> She's a, a really powerful force in a very small package. <laughs> She's a real tough lady, and so... She's always on board and applauding the wacky things I decide to do, so I really appreciate that. Uh, and second, I think this, we work with an enormous amount of small businesses, and seeing the grit and determination that people have to make their small businesses work and their willingness to support us as we launch ours is incredibly inspiring. Great. Well, continue good luck with family dinner. Thank you so much. Thanks, Aaron. Power of Good is a production of Ink House, an integrated PR agency of and for changemakers. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about people doing great things in creative ways or to share your story, visit us at inkhouse.com agency insights and be sure to follow us on social media at Inkhouse PR. If you want to connect directly, email us at powerofgood at inkhouse.com.